Part One, Chapter Five of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Five. Thus it was that James Milbank entered on his first night at Orristown. The surprise, the excitement, and the culminating incident of the evening would have been disturbing to a man of even more placid temperament, and rebel as he might against the weakness, he lay awake considerably longer than was his wont in the uncomfortable canopied bed, listening to the numberless infinitesimal sounds that break the silence of a sleeping house. From the faint occasional cracking of the furniture to the scurrying of a mouse behind the plaster walls. Then gradually, as his ears became accustomed to these minor noises, another sound, unnoticed in the activity of the early hours, obtruded itself softly but persistently upon his consciousness. The subdued and regular breaking of the sea on the rocks below the house. A slight sense of annoyance was his first feeling, for it was many years since he had slept by the sea. Then quietly, lingeringly, soothingly, the rhythmical persistence of the sound began to tell. Imperceptibly, the confusing ideas of the evening became pleasantly indistinct. The numberless contradictory feelings blurred into one delightful sensation of indifference and repose. With the salt, moist air borne to him through the open window, and the great untiring lullaby of the ocean rising and falling upon his senses like the purring of a gigantic cat, he fell asleep. His first sensation upon waking the next morning was one of pleasure, the placid unquestioning satisfaction that comes to the troubled mind with the advent of a fine day. To his simple taste the sights and sounds that met his waking consciousness were possessed of an unaccustomed charm. With daylight the room that last night had held grim and even ghostly suggestions took on a more human and friendly air. The ancient mahogany furniture seemed anxious to reflect the morning sunshine. The massive posts of the bed with their drapery of faded rep no longer glowered upon the intruder. Each object was bathed in and rejuvenated by the golden warmth, the incomparable mellow radiance of sea and sky that flowed in at the open window. For a while he lay in contemplative enjoyment of this early untainted atmosphere while the sounds of the awakening day gradually rose above the soft beating of the outgoing tide falling upon his ears in a pleasant primitive melody of clacking fowls, joyous yelping dogs, and stamping horses. For a space he lay still. Then the inevitable wish to take active part in this world created from the darkness and the silence of the night aroused him, and slipping out of bed he drew on a dressing-gown and walked to the window. The sight that met his eyes was one of infinite beauty the delicacy, the poetry, the subtle, unnameable charm that lie in the hollow of nature's hand were over land and sky and sea. The warmth and wealth of summer stretched before him, but summer mellowed and softened by a golden autumnal haze. There are more inspiring countries than Ireland, countries more richly dowered in vegetation, countries more radiant in atmosphere and brilliant in coloring, but there is no land where the hand of the Maker is more poignantly felt. 
where the mystic spirit of creation the wonderful tender pathetic sense of the beginning has been so strangely preserved as milbank stood at the open window his eyes travelled without interruption over the wide green fields neither lawn nor meadow that spread from the house to the shore owning no boundary wall beyond the low shelving rocks of red sandstone that rose a natural barrier against the encroachments of the tide and from the fields his gaze wandered onward drawn irresistibly and inevitably to the sea itself the watchful tyrannical guardian of the silent land it lay before him like a tremendous glassy lake stretching in one untroubled sweep from Oristown to the point three miles away where the purple headland of Carrigmore completed the semicircle of the bay. The silence, the majesty of that sweep of water, was indescribable. From the rim of yellow sand where the indolent waves were lapping to the misted horizon, not one sign of human life marred the smoothness of its surface. Across the bay at Carrigmore a few spirals of smoke rose from the cluster of pink and white cottages lying under the shadow of the round tower on the long sandy strand a couple of bare-legged boys were leisurely raking up the seaweed that the waves had left and slowly piling it on a waiting donkey-butt but the sea itself was undisturbed it lay as it might have lain on the first day of completed creation mystical sublime untouched milbank was no poet yet the scene impressed him the extraordinary sense of an inimitable and impenetrable peace before which man and man's mere transitory concerns are dwarfed if not entirely eliminated touched him vaguely it was with a tinge of something bordering upon reluctance that he at last drew his eyes from the picture and began to dress but once freed from the spell of the ocean his mind reverted to the other interest that lay closer at hand he found himself wondering how his entertainers would appear on a second inspection, whether, like his room, they would take on a more commonplace semblance with the advent of daylight. The touch of irrepressible and human curiosity that the speculation aroused gave a spur to the business of dressing, and it was well under the twenty minutes usually devoted to his neat and careful toilet when he found himself crossing the corridor and descending the stairs he encountered no one as he passed through the hall, and catching a fresh suggestion of sunshine through the door that stood hospitably open, he paused for an instant to take a cursory glance at the graveled sweep that terminated the drive, and the grassy slope surmounted by a fringe of beeches that formed the outlook from the front of the house. Then he turned quickly, and, recrossing the hall, passed into the dining-room. None of the household had yet appeared, but here also the daylight had worked changes. The curtains were drawn back, permitting the view of fields and sea that he had already studied from his bedroom to break uninterruptedly through the three lofty windows. The effect was one of extreme airiness and light, and it was quite a minute before his gaze turned to the darker side of the room, for the portrait of the famous Anthony Ashland hung above the fire. Realizing that he was alone in the big room, he crossed to the table where breakfast was already laid, the remains of the enormous ham rising from an untidy paper frill to defy the attacks of the largest appetite. In the brilliance of the light the fineness of the table linen 
and its state of dilapidation were both accentuated as was the genuine beauty and intrinsic value of the badly kept silver but milbank had no time to absorb these details for instantly he reached the table his eye was caught by a folded slip of paper lying by his place with a touch of surprise he stooped forward and picked it up then a wave of annoyance almost of guilt succeeded the surprise as he realized that it was a check made out in ashland's straggling handwriting for his losses of the night before as he fingered it uncomfortably a vivid remembrance of his interview with clodagh rose to his mind he thought of the poverty suggested rather than expressed by the girl's words he thought of the muskiri horse-dealer who had all but emptied the stables with a puckered brow he studied his own name scrawled across the check then with a sense of something like duplicity he hurriedly pushed it under his plate as he heard the hall door close and footsteps sound across the hall a moment later ashland followed by his two daughters entered the room all three greeted him in turn then ashland crossed to the fire and proceeded to stir it to a blaze while nance and clodagh passed to their appointed places both girls looked pleasantly in keeping with the fresh morning their rich youthful coloring having nothing to fear from the searching light nance was dressed in a very clean blue frock that accentuated the color of her eyes but clodagh was again attired in the old-fashioned riding habit though this time the boy's cap was absent and the sunshine caught reflections in her light brown hair i hope you don't mind my being dressed like this she said as she took her seat i always have a ride in the mornings and i generally tidy up for breakfast but i'm riding a race at ten with larry my cousin you know so twouldn't be worth while to change to-day she spoke quite naturally encountering milbank's eyes with no suggestion of embarrassment for last night's adventure he met her glance for an instant then his own wandered guiltily to the corner of the check protruding from under his plate not at all he said hurriedly not at all i hope i may be permitted to see the race clodagh smiled of course if you like she said but it won't be much to look at she added this with a quick glance that ineffectually attempted to gauge the guest's taste and powers of appreciation twill be grand murmured nance softly and i know who's going to win nonsense said clodagh i won in the practice last night but the strand was wet and the cob is only sure on hard ground but nevertheless she flushed and threw a quick look of appreciation and affection at her loyal little partisan what are you two chattering about said ashland standing up from the fire and straightening his shoulders is it your notion of hospitality to keep a stranger waiting for his breakfast faith we knew better in the old days eh james he laughed and passed round the table clodagh presided at the old-fashioned silver urn and either her confidences of the night before or the prospect of her coming contest affected her for she forgot the diffidence that had marked her at the dinner of the preceding evening and talked brightly and with interest on a variety of subjects finally as she handed milbank his second cup of tea she touched upon the object of his visit twas to see the ruins at Carrigamore, not us that you came wasn't it she said with a shade of humour he returned her glance seriously oh no he said at least ah now you've let it out she cried with a laugh i knew it i said so didn't i nance i knew no one would come here just to see us ashland laughed 
"'Upon my soul,' he cried, "'you haven't learned your market value yet, Clo. If I were a girl I'm hanged if I'd rate myself lower than a fourth-century ruin.' He laughed afresh. But Clodagh displayed no embarrassment. She was too unversed in the ways of coquetry to see or resent the point of the remark. "'Aye,' she said naively, "'what have I to do with it?' After this there was a trifling silence, at the end of which Ashlyn looked quickly at his guest. "'By the way, James,' he exclaimed, "'we were too well amused last night to look ahead. I never thought of asking you about to-day. Have you any pet plans or schemes? Is it to be a pilgrimage to St. Galen? Or what do you say to a day in the saddle? There's a meet not five miles away, and if a good gallop pleases you I have as neat a little horse for you as ever carried a saddle. What do you say? Of course, if you think the round tower is likely to collapse or be demolished by a tidal wave, I won't raise a finger. But... Milbank laughed. My dear Dennis, he said quickly, don't you trouble on my account. He danced deprecatingly over Ashland's sporting attire. Don't you trouble about me. I never was a sportsman, as you know. I'll go to my own hunting, and you go to yours. Don't let me interfere with any plans you may have formed. I enjoy a solitary excursion. But Ashland's face darkened. Oh, no, he objected after a short pause. Oh, no, if you're not game for it, then the meat is off so far as I'm concerned. I can't have you roaming about the country by yourself. Oh, no, I hope I remember my obligations. Milbank looked distressed. With a genuine feeling of embarrassment, he turned from one face to the other. My dear Dennis, he objected feebly, I must really beg of you. Not another word, not another word. Ashlyn ostentatiously helped himself to some ham. I hope, James, that whatever our environments, we still understand the traditions of hospitality. If you don't feel on for it, there's no hunting for me today. After this there was another unpleasant pause. Ashlyn attempted to hide his chagrin, but his face was unmistakably dark with disappointment. For a space Milbank toyed with his breakfast, then he spoke again. But, my dear Dennis, if you will only allow me, he ventured. But before Ashlyn could reply, Clodagh's voice broke in. Oh, you needn't bother so much, father, she said easily. You go to the meet, and I'll take Mr. Milbank to Carrigmore. I'll drive him over in the pony trap, or we'll walk whichever he likes best. She spoke fluently and gaily, and it was difficult for Milbank to reconcile the high, buoyant tones of her voice with the serious note struck by her the night before. Filled with relief, however, at her timely interruption, he was satisfied to let the discrepancy go unregarded. "'Excellent!' he cried. "'An excellent idea, Miss Clodagh. Here's your difficulty solved, Dennis. Your Irish sense of chivalry won't allow you to deprive me of so charming a guide.' Clodagh laughed frankly at that stilted compliment, and Ashland's face brightened perceptibly. Oh, well, as you're so amiable, he said magnanimously, I don't mind admitting that twould have been a bit of a sacrifice to give up the hunt, though if I hadn't been overruled by the majority I'd have swallowed the ruins without a grimace. He laughed with restored good humor and turned to his daughters. When you're done with breakfast, Clo, he said, run around to the stables and tell Bert he need only saddle the bay. With the decision that he was, after all, to enjoy his day's sport, his spirits had risen. 
and despite the fact that the daylight revealed many evidences of last night's dissipation that would have been visible thirty years ago, Milbank was pleased and reassured by his appearance. His movements were energetic, his expression alert. He suggested one who is interested and attracted by life. And the elder man was too unimaginative, too single of purpose in his own concerns, to suspect that the energy, the suggestion of anticipation, were due to his own presence in the house, to the promise of excitement and diversion that the presence offered. With the definite arrangement of the day's plans, a fresh energy had descended on the party, and but a few minutes passed before Clodagh and Nance rose from the table and left the room. Then, as the two men were left alone, Milbank put into action the resolution that had been gradually maturing in his mind. Not without a certain trepidation, not without an embarrassed distaste for the task, he bent forward in his precise manner, and drawing the check from beneath his plate, began to smooth it out. Dennis, he said, I found this on my plate when I came downstairs. Ashland looked up hastily and laughed. He had all the Irishman's distaste to money as a topic of conversation. He was as sensitive in the offering of it to another as in the accepting of it for himself. "'Oh, that's all right,' he said quickly. "'Not another word about that, James. Not another syllable.' But Milbank continued to finger the check. "'Dennis,' he began again, a shade of nervousness audible in his voice, "'I am uncertain how to say what I want to say.' I am extremely anxious not to offend you, and yet I feel—I fear that you may take offense. Before replying, Ashland drained the cup of strong tea that stood beside his plate. Then he glanced again at his companion. "'What in thunder are you driving at?' he asked good-humoredly. Milbank looked down. "'That's what I want to explain,' he answered without raising his head. "'And you must not allow it to offend you. I want you, for the sake of old friendship, to let me tear this check up. I was excited last night. I infringed on one of my set rules, that of never playing cards for high stakes. It is for my own sake that I ask permission to do this. It will put me right with myself." He laughed deprecatingly. For a second there was no indication that his labored explanation had been even heard. Then, with alarming suddenness, Ashland brought his hand down upon the table, ripping out an oath. "'And where the devil do I come in?' he demanded. "'Is it because you see the place going to rack and ruin that you think you can insult me in my own house? I'd have you to know that when an Ashland needs charity he will ask for it.' In the spasm of rage that had attacked him his eyes blazed and the veins in his forehead swelled. Then, suddenly catching a glance of the consternation on his guest's face, he controlled himself by an effort and with a loud laugh pushed back his chair and rose. "'Forgive me, James,' he said roughly. "'You don't understand. You never did understand. It's the cursed pride of a cursed country. The less we have to be proud of, the more damned proud we are. We have a sense of humor for everything in creation except ourselves.' Again he laughed harshly. Then again his mood changed. "'James,' he said seriously, "'put that check in your pocket.' and if you value my friendship, never mention it again. We may be a bad lot. We may be all close says of us, fools, rakes, spendthrifts, but no Ashland ever shirked his debts of honor. The words were bombastic, 
the sentiment false, but the natural dignity and distinction of the man. Dissipated failure, though he might be, were unmistakable as he stood with high head and erect figure. By the ironic injustice of such circumstances, Milbank, honest, prosaic, incapable of a dishonorable action, felt suddenly humiliated. With shamefaced haste he muttered an apology and thrust the check into his pocket. At the moment that he did so, Clodagh re-entered the room. "'It's all right, father,' she exclaimed. "'The bay will be round in a second, and Larry has come. Are you ready, Mr. Milbank?' He responded with instant alacrity. It was the second time that morning that she had unconsciously come to his relief. "'Oh, quite,' he said, "'quite ready. Shall we start?' "'This minute, if you like. Good-bye, father. I hope it will be a good run.' She crossed the room quickly, then paused at the door. "'Remember, the race will be nothing at all worth seeing,' she added, glancing back over her shoulder at the guest. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 Without ceremony or apology, Clodagh led Milbank to the stables by the shortest route which entailed the traversing of several long and windy passages and the crossing of the great draughty kitchen where Hannah, the housekeeper, cook, and general mainstay of the establishment held undisputed sway. As they entered her domain she was standing by an open window engaged in the cleaning of a saucepan, an operation to which she brought an astonishing amount of noisy energy. At the sight of the stranger she dropped the knife she was holding and made a furtive attempt to straighten her ample and somewhat dirty apron. "'I wish I, Miss Clodagh,' she began in a voice that trembled between chagrin and an inherent sense of hospitality. "'Isn't that a queer thing for you to be doing now, to be bringing the gentleman down here and me in the middle of me pots? Not but what you're welcome, sir, though tis no fit place for you,' she added, with a glance that summed the intruder up from head to heel. Milbank laughed a little awkwardly. "'So long as you make no objection,' he said with amiable haste, "'I see nothing to find fault with.' But Hannah gave an incredulous shake of her head. "'Ah, you do be saying that,' she replied sagely. "'But tis a queer place you'll be fine in Orristown after England.' She added this in a persuasive tone, making a tentative cast for the stranger's sentiments. But before the fish could rise to her bait her attention was claimed in another direction. A pellet of mud, aimed with extreme accuracy, came flying through the open window and hit her on the cheek. Milbank glanced round quickly. Clodagh laughed, and the victim of the assault gave a gasp, pushed her saucepans aside, and thrust her head through the window. "'Wait till I catch you, Master Larry,' she cried across the yard. "'How can I be doing the work of six women and three men with the likes of you traipsing about? Upon my word I'll tell on you. I'll tell your uncle on you.' long threatening comes at last but the only response that greeted her was a smothered laugh from the stables opposite a laugh which clodagh involuntarily echoed instantly hannah wheeled round from the window ah miss clodagh isn't it a shame for you she exclaimed tremulously isn't it a shame for you now to be encouraging that brat of a boy sure tis a third time he thrown his marbles of mud at me this morning so signs i'll spake to the master i will so she gave her apron a defiant tug. Milbank stood uncertain and embarrassed, nervously curious as to Clodagh's next move. With a certain misgiving he saw her face brim over with delight. Then, with a sense of complete amazement, 
he saw her step suddenly to the side of the indignant Hannah, throw one arm impulsively round her neck, and give her a hasty kiss. "'Indeed, you won't speak to him, Hannah, and you know you won't,' she said in her most beguiling tones, "'and you'll make a griddle cake for lunch just to show you aren't angry. Come on, Mr. Milbank, Larry is waiting.' As they crossed the kitchen, Hannah defiantly passed the corner of her apron across her eyes and ostentatiously resumed her interrupted work. At the door, Clodagh looked back. "'Hannah,' she said persuasively. Hannah began to scrape her saucepan. "'Go on with ye now, Miss Clodagh,' she cried. "'Sure tis a pair of ye that's there. I'm out with ye. But the griddle-cake, Hannah? Let Betsy over at Mrs. Ashland's make griddle-cake for ye. Maybe she wouldn't put up with Master Larry as easy as me.' "'Of course Betsy would make a griddle-cake at any time,' said Clodagh promptly, "'only we couldn't eat it after yours.' For a moment Hannah made no response. Then she gave another disdainful whisk to her apron and attacked the saucepan with renewed force. Clodagh said nothing but took a step forward. Her cheeks were bright and her eyes danced with mischief and amusement. As her foot touched the paving stones of the yard, Hannah raised her head. "'I suppose twill be at one you'll be wanting the lunch?' she said in a suddenly lowered and mollified voice and Clodagh responded with a laugh of triumph and delight. Outside in the sunshine of the yard she laughed again. "'Hannah is an old duck,' she said. "'She is always getting as cross as two sticks, and then forgetting all about it. Nobody could help teasing her. But where's Larry gone to? Larry! Larry!' There was a pause, a stamping of horses' hoofs, and the sound of a voice whispering affectionate injunctions to an unseen animal. Then young Lawrence Ashland emerged from the stables, leading his chestnut cob. He was a well-made, long-limbed boy of fourteen, with skin as smooth and eyes as clear as Clodagh's own. "'Hello, Clo!' he exclaimed. "'That was a straight shot, wasn't it? Was she mad?' "'Pretty mad,' responded Clodagh. "'This is Mr. Milbank. He came last night.' Young Ashland eyed the stranger frankly and without embarrassment. "'You're not at the meet?' he said with involuntary surprise. I'd be there, only mother doesn't let me hunt yet. She thinks I'd break my neck or something, he laughed. But I'll go to every meet within twenty miles when I'm a man, he added. There's nothing as good as hunting except sailing. Are you much of a sailor? Milbank looked back into the bright, fearless eyes and healthy, spirited face, and again a touch of aloofness of age damped him. There was a buoyancy in this boy and girl, a zest and enthusiasm outside which he stood the undeniable alien. "'Yes, I am fond of the sea,' he responded, "'but probably not as you are fond of it.' Try as he might to be natural and pleasant, his speech sounded stilted, his words stayed. The boy looked at him doubtfully. "'Didn't know there were two ways of doing it,' he said, rubbing his face against the cob's sleek neck. But Clodagh came to her guest's rescue. "'Larry doesn't deserve any credit for liking the sea,' she said. "'His father was a sailor. You go on to the fields, Larry,' she added. "'You'll find Nance waiting there. I'll saddle Polly in a second and be after you with Mr. Milbank. Run now. You're only wasting time.' Larry hesitated for a moment. Then he nodded. "'All right,' he acquiesced. "'Only don't be long.' Instantly he was gone. Clodagh handed her whip to Milbank and darted into the coach-house, reappearing with a saddle over her arm 
and a bridle swinging from her shoulder. "'You are not going to saddle the horse yourself?' he exclaimed in consternation. "'Let me call one of the men. Please let me call one of the men.' Clodagh laughed. "'There is no one to call,' she said. "'Burke is the only proper manservant we keep, and he drove into Muscarie for provisions as soon as he brought the bay round for father. You don't think I'd let any of the laborers touch the horses?' As she said this she laughed again, and, nodding gaily, passed into one of the stalls. After she had disappeared, Milbank stood silent, listening with an uncomfortable embarrassment to the soft whinnying of the horse, the soft murmuring of Clodagh's voice, the straining and creaking of leather that reached his ears. At last, yielding to his instincts, he stepped forward and spoke again. "'Miss Clodagh, let me help you,' he said. "'I'm afraid I'm rather useless, but you might let me try.' Again Clodagh's soft, humorous laugh answered him. "'It's done now,' she said, "'and anyway I've known how to saddle a horse since I was twelve. Stand back a little, please.' He drew back hastily, and she let out a small grey mare. "'She isn't much to look at,' she explained, "'but she's grand to go, and I know she's going to win. She must win.' She kissed the animal impulsively on the soft, quivering nostril. Together they threaded their way between the scurrying fowls and innumerable dogs that filled the yard, Clodagh leading the mare, Milbank keeping close to her side. "'What's this race for?' he asked as they passed through the arched gateway. "'A mere trial of strength?' Clodagh's eyes widened. "'Oh, no,' she said. "'That would be silly. There are stakes, of course.' Larry's telescope against my Irish terrier. The telescope belonged to Uncle Lawrence, and it's a beauty, but it's nothing at all to Mick. Mick is a pedigree dog, six months old, with the finest coat and the loveliest head you ever saw. If I lost him... But here she stopped. It's unlucky to say that, isn't it? she added quickly. Of course I'm not going to lose him. Again she turned and fondled the mare and a moment later they came into view of the long level fields that lay between the house and the sea, and saw the erect figure of Larry clearly silhouetted against the sky, as he sat as cob with the ease of the born horseman. It took Milbank but a few minutes to place himself in a safe and advantageous position on a ditch that, dividing two of the fields, was to form the last jump of the race and once ensconced in this pleasant and not uncomfortable seat, he watched the cousins move across the fields to the point where little Nance was waiting to arrange the preliminaries. He saw Clodagh mount the grey mare, observed the one or two inevitable false starts, then became conscious with a quickening of interest that the race had begun. Had he been possessed of the humorous quality, he would undoubtedly have been drawn into a smile at his own position. As it was, he saw nothing ludicrous in the idea of an elderly student seated on an Irish ditch playing umpire to a couple of children. As the horses started, he merely settled himself more securely in his seat and drew out his handkerchief in obedience to the instinct that some expression of enthusiasm would be demanded by the winner. He could not picture himself raising a cheer as the conqueror sailed past him but his dignity affably bent to the idea of a friendly wave of a handkerchief. A slight breeze was blowing in from the sea, and the intense freshness of the atmosphere again obtruded itself upon him as he watched the horses swing towards him across the fields 
the thud of their hooves upon the grass gaining in volume with every stride. For a space they galloped neck to neck. Then, slowly, almost imperceptibly, Clodagh drew away. For a couple of seconds the distance between the animals became noticeable. Then young Ashland, urging the chestnut, regained his lost position, and to Milbank's eyes the two were again abreast as they crossed the last field. Once more he settled himself in his place of bandage. Something in the freshness of the morning, something in the youth and vitality of the competitors, gave the race an interest and attraction it would otherwise have lacked. With a reluctant sensation, half curiosity, half the alien's unaccountable attraction towards conditions of life other than his own, he found himself straining his eyes towards the two slight figures moving towards him across the short grass. Nearer and nearer they came, maintaining their level positions. Then, as the last ditch came clearly into view, the gray mare seemed to gather herself together for the short final gallop and the jump. Leaning forward, he saw Clodagh straighten herself in the saddle as each stride increased the advantage she had gained. Unconsciously, with the nearer pounding of the hoofs, the excitement of the moment touched him. But it touched him with disastrous results. As the mare neared the ditch, he suddenly leant forward, losing the balance he had so carefully preserved. The action was instantaneous, and it was but the work of another instant to grasp the sturdy weeds that topped the ditch and regain his position. But unwittingly the harmless incident had changed the result of the race. As he involuntarily steadied himself, the handkerchief, held in readiness for the victor, slipped from his hand and fluttered down upon the grass. It fell at the feet of the gray mare. She paused in sudden alarm, then hunched herself together and shied away from it as from a ghost. No harm was done. Clodagh kept her seat without a tremor. But in that second of lost time the cob drew level with his rival, then sailed triumphantly over the ditch. For Millbank there was a moment of horrible suspense, and a succeeding relief that drove all thought of the race and its result far from his mind. Immediately the field was clear, he scrambled from his position and hurried to where Clodagh was soothing the still-frightened Polly. "'Miss Clodagh,' he began, "'I am so sorry. I assure you it—it it was not my fault.' Clodagh was bending low over the mare's neck, her flushed face partially hidden. She made no reply to his confused and stammering speech. "'Miss Clodagh,' he began afresh, "'you are not angry?' You don't think it was my fault. Clodagh laughed a little tremulously. Of course not, she said. How can you be so silly? I hadn't had her properly in hand, that was all. As she finished, young Ashland cantered back, halting on the further side of the ditch. His face was also flush, and his eyes looked dark. Look here, he said, eyeing Milbank. What did you mean by balking her like that? What were you doing with your beastly handkerchief? Twas no race, Clo but Clodagh looked up. "'Oh, yes, it was,' she said. "'It was all mine own fault. I hadn't Polly in hand. I should have pulled her together and sent her over with a touch of the whip. Apologize, Larry. Twas a fair race.' But Larry still hesitated, his glance straying doubtfully from one face to the other. "'Honor bright, Clo?' he asked at last. Clodagh nodded. "'Then I'm sorry, sir,' he said frankly, "'for saying what I said.' 
Millbank made a murmur of forgiveness, and a moment later Nance appeared upon the scene breathless and full of curiosity. As Larry entered upon a voluble account of the finish in reply to her eager questions, Clodagh wheeled the mare round and trotted quickly across the fields in the direction of the house. For a moment or two Millbank stood irresolute. Then a sudden impulse to follow the mare and her rider seized him, and ignoring Nance and Larry, still absorbed in heated explanation, he took his way slowly across the green and springy turf. His crossing of the field was measured and methodical, and he had barely come within sight of the arched gateway of the yard when Clodagh reappeared, this time on foot. The tail of her habit was tucked under one arm, the struggling form of an Irish terrier was held firmly under the other. She came straight forward in his direction, and, reaching him, would have passed on without speaking. But he halted in front of her. "'Miss Clodagh,' he said, "'you are hurt and disappointed.' Clodagh averted her eyes. "'I'm not,' she said shortly. "'But I see that you are.' "'No, I'm not.' "'Miss Clodagh, you are. Can't I do something?' Then at last she looked at him. Her cheeks were burning, and her eyes were brimming with tears that only pride held back. "'It isn't the old race,' she said defiantly. "'It's—it's Mick.' Two tears suddenly welled over and dropped on the red head of the dog, who responded with an adoring look and a wild attempt to lick her face. "'Oh, I've had him since he was six weeks old,' she cried impulsively. "'I reared him and trained him myself. He knows every word I say.' Millbank suddenly looked relieved. "'Is that all?' he exclaimed cheerfully. "'Is that all? We'll soon put that right. Keep your dog. I'll settle matters with your cousin.' He glanced back across the fields to where Larry was walking the cob to and fro, but Clodagh's face expressed intense surprise. "'But you don't understand,' she said. "'Mick was the stake. T'was a fair race, and Larry won. Mick is—is Larry's now.' He laughed a little. "'Oh, nonsense! You raced for fun.' "'Yes, for the best fun we could get,' she said seriously. "'That's why we staked what we cared most about. Don't you understand?' For the moment her grief was merged in her unaffected surprise at his lack of comprehension. But Millbank was staring at her interestedly. The scene at the breakfast-table, and with it Ashland's offended pride and ridiculous dignity, had risen before him with her soft, surprised tone her wide, incredulous gaze. With total unconsciousness she was voicing the sentiments of her race, An Ashland might neglect everything else in the world, but his debts of honour were sacred things. He looked more closely at the pretty, distressed face, at the brimming eyes, and the resolutely set lips. "'And simply because you staked him,' he said, "'you intend to lose the dog?' Clodagh caught her breath and a fresh tear fell on Mick's head. Then, with a defiant lifting of the chin, she started forward across the field. "'Twas a fair race,' she said in an unsteady voice. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 Whatever Clodagh may have felt upon the subject, she made no further allusion to the loss of her dog. An hour after the race, Millbank, standing at his bedroom window, caught a glimpse of Larry riding slowly across the fields towards the avenue, with the evidently unwilling Mick held securely under his arm. 
and a few minutes afterwards a noisy bell clanging through the house informed him that luncheon had been served. The two girls were already in the dining-room when he entered. Clodagh had changed her riding habit for a neat holland dress. Her hair was smoothly plaited, and only a lingering trace of the morning's excitement burned in her cheeks. As the guest entered she came forward at once and pointed to his chair with a pretty touch of gracious hospitality. "'Where is your cousin?' he said, as he responded to her gesture. She flushed momentarily. "'Gone,' she answered laconically. Then, conscious that the reply was curt, she made haste to amend it. "'He's gone to lunch,' she added, and Fan wanted him back. She's a great invalid and always worrying about him. I suppose invalids are never like other people. Will you please help yourself?' She smiled and indicated a steaming stew, sufficient to feed ten hungry people, that Hannah, acting in Burke's absence, had planted heavily upon the table. "'We always begin lunch with meat,' Clodagh explained, "'but we always finish with tea and whatever Hannah will make for us to eat. If you stay long enough you'll be able to tell all Hannah's tempers by what we get at lunch. When she's terribly cross we have bread and jam. When she's midden we get soda bread. But when she's really and truly nice we have a currant loaf or brittle cake. She glanced round mischievously at the red face of the factotum. Hannah, who had been wavering between offence and amusement, suddenly succumbed to the look. "'Sure, tis a queer notion you'll be giving him of the place,' she said amicably, joining in the conversation without a shade of embarrassment. "'If I was you I wouldn't be telling a gentleman that I loves the whole work of the house to one poor old woman and goes gallivanting over the country morning, noon, and night instead of learning myself to be a good housekeeper. So signs tis Miss Nance that'll find the husband first. With a knowing glance at Millbank and a shake of the head she left the room, banging the door behind her. Clodagh laughed. The insinuation in Hannah's words and look passed unnoticed by her. She swept them aside unconcernedly and proceeded with an inborn tact, an inborn sense of the responsibilities of her position to fill her role of hostess and entertain her guest. So successful was she in this new aspect that Millbank found himself thawing, even growing communicative under her influence as the meal progressed. Long before the appetizing griddle-cake and the heavy silver teapot had been laid upon the table he had begun to feel at home, to meet Nance's shy friendly smiles without embarrassment to talk with freedom and naturalness of his small personal ambitions, his own unimportant individual researches in his pet study of antiquity. A reticent man, when once his reticence has been broken down, makes as egotistical a confidant as any other. Before they rose from the table he had been beguiled into forgetting that the Celtic zeal for the entertainment of a guest may sometimes be mistaken for something more that Irish children, with their natural kinship to sun and rain, dogs and horses, men and women, may assume, but cannot possibly feel, an interest in monuments of wood or stone, no matter how historic or how unique. This erroneous impression remained with him until the time arrived for Clodagh to pilot him to Carrigmore, and filled with the knowledge of having a sympathetic listener he harked back to his earliest experiences while he covered the two miles of firm yellow sand with his young hostess 
walking sedately beside him, and half a dozen dogs, setters, retrievers, and sharp-nosed terriers, careering about him in a joyous band. He entered upon minute and technical details of every archaeological discovery of the past decade. He recounted his personal opinion of each. He even unbent to the extent of relating a dry anecdote or two during that delightful walk in the mellow warmth of the afternoon. It was only when the long curve of the strand had at last been traversed and the rocks of Orristown left far behind that discoveries, opinions, and stories alike faded from his mind in the nearer interest of the Carrigmore ruins. Even to the pleasure-seeker there was something symbolic and imposing in the tall, grey, symmetrical tower that tops the hill above Carrigmore and faces the great sweep of the Atlantic Ocean, something infinitely ancient and impressive in the crumbling ruins of the church from whose walls the rudely carved figures look down to-day as they look down in primitive Christian times when Carrigmore was a centre of learning and its tower a beacon to the world of faith. To Milbank, a student of such things, they were a revelation. He scarcely spoke as he climbed the steep hill and entered the grass-grown churchyard, and once within the precincts of the ruin all considerations save the consideration of the moment faded from his thoughts. With the mild enthusiasm that his hobby always awoke in him, he set about a minute examination of the place, hurriedly unstrapping the satchel in which he carried his antiquarian's paraphernalia. During the first half-hour Clodaw sat dutifully on one of the greys, alternately plaiting grasses and admonishing or petting her dogs. Then her long-tried patience gave out. With a sudden imperative need of action she rose, shook the grasses from her skirt, and, picking her way between the half-buried headstones, reached Milbank's side. "'Mr. Milbank,' she said frankly, "'would you mind very much if I went away and came back for you in an hour? You see, the ruins aren't quite so new to me as they are to you. People say they've been here since the fourth century.' She laughed and called to the dogs. But Milbank scarcely heard the laugh. There was a flush of delight on his thin cheeks as he peered through his magnifying glass into one of the carved stones. He waited a moment before replying. Then he answered with bent head. "'Certainly, Miss Clodagh,' he said abstractedly, "'certainly. But make it two hours, I beg of you, instead of one.' And with another amused laugh Clodagh took advantage of her dismissal. Milbank's absorption was so unfeigned that when Clodagh came running back nearly three hours later, full of remorse for her long desertion, he greeted her with something amounting to regret. Twice she had to remind him that the afternoon was all but spent, and the long walk to Orristown still to be reckoned with before he could desist from the fascinating task of completing the notes he had made. At last, with a little sigh of amiable regret, he shut up his book, returned the magnifying glass to his satchel, and slowly followed her out of the churchyard. They had covered half a mile of the smooth strand across which the first long shadows of evening had begun to fall, before the glamour of the past centuries had faded from his consideration, permitting the more material present to obtrude itself. Then at last, with a little start of compunction, 
he realized how silent and uninteresting a companion he must seem to the girl walking so stately beside him and with something of guilt in the movement he withdrew his eyes from the long wet line of sand where the incoming tide was stealthily encroaching miss clodagh he said abruptly what are you thinking of with frank spontaneity she turned and met his gaze i was wondering she said candidly when you'd forget the round tower and remember about father he started roused to a fresh sense of guilt you you mustn't think he began stammeringly but clodagh laughed oh don't bother about it she said easily i wasn't really thinking for a while he remained silent watching the noisy dogs as they ineffectually chased the seagulls that wheeled above the unruffled waves then at last urged by his awakened conscience he half paused and looked again at the girl's bright face miss clodagh he began i feel very guilty i am very guilty clodagh glanced back at him how she said simply because last night i unconsciously did what you disapprove of i played with your father for high stakes and i am ashamed to say that i won a large sum of money for an instant the brightness left her glance she looked at him with the serious eyes of the night before much she asked impulsively twenty pounds millbank felt himself color then he rallied his courage but that isn't all he added quickly i have something worse to confess when i came down to breakfast this morning i found a check lying on my plate i felt intensely remorseful as you can imagine and determined to make reparation after breakfast i broached the subject to dennis i begged him to allow me to cancel our play by tearing up the check he was furiously angry and i instead of showing the courage of my opinion was actually weak enough to succumb now what punishment do you think i deserve he paused looking at her anxiously for a while she looked steadily ahead absorbed in her own thoughts then slowly she looked back at him with interested incredulous eyes don't english people pay when they lose she asked after a long pause again he colored why yes he said hurriedly yes of course only only what nothing nothing it was only that i thought you wanted i wanted you not to encourage him i never wanted you to think that he isn't a gentleman she made the statement with perfect naturalness as though the subject was one of common everyday discussion according to her code of honor she was justified in putting every possible bar to her father's weakness but where the bar had proved useless where the weakness had conquered and the deed she disapproved of had been accomplished then the matter to her thinking had passed out of her hands her judgment ceased to be individual and became the judgment of her race as she looked at milbank's perplexed concerned face her expression changed and she smiled the smile was gracious and reassuring but below the graciousness lay a tinge of tolerant indulgence we won't talk about it any more she said i don't suppose you can be expected to understand and suddenly raising her head she whistled to the dogs during the remainder of the walk milbank was very silent perplexed and yet fascinated by the problem his mind dwelt unceasingly upon this strange position into which the chances of a day or two had thrown him the bonds that drew him to his entertainers 
and the gulf that separated him from them were so tangible and yet so elusive. In every outward respect they were his fellow human beings. They spoke the same language, wore the same dress, ate the same food, and yet unquestionably they were creatures of different fiber. He felt curiously daunted and curiously attracted by the peculiar fact. To appreciate the difference between the Englishman and the Irishman, one must see the latter in his native atmosphere. It is there that his faults and his virtues take on their proper values, there that his innate poetry, his reckless generosity, his prodigal hospitality have fullest scope, there that his primitive narrowness of outlook, his antiquated sense of honor, and his absurdly sensitive self-esteem are most vividly backgrounded. Outside his own country he is merely a subject of a great empire, possessing perhaps a sharper wit and a more ingratiating manner than his fellow-subjects of colder temperament. But in his natural environment he stands out preeminently as a peculiar development, the product of a warm-blooded, intelligent, imaginative race that by some oversight of nature has been pushed aside in the march of nations. Milbank made no attempt to formulate this idea or any portion of it as he paced steadily forward across the darkening sands, but incontinently it did flash across his mind that the girl beside him claimed more attention in this unsophisticated atmosphere than he might have given her in conventional surroundings. She was so much part of the picture, so undeniably a child of the sweeping cliffs, the magnificent sea, and the hundred traditions that encircled the primitive land. In her buoyant, youthful figure he seemed, by a curious retrograde process of the mind, to find the solution to his own early worship of Ashland. Ashland had attracted him, ruled him, domineered over him by right of superiority, the hereditary, half-barbaric superiority of the natural aristocrat the man of ancient lineage in a country where yesterday and the glories of yesterday stand for everything where to-day is unreckoned with and to-morrow does not exist reaching the end of the strand he turned to her quickly with a strange sensation of sympathy almost of oppression miss clodagh he said gently as she began to ascend the heaped-up boulders that separated the road from the beach miss clodagh I grant that I don't quite understand, as you put it, but I knew your father many years before you were born, and I think that gives me some privilege. On one point I have quite made up my mind. I shall not play cards again while I am in your house. As he spoke, Clodagh paused in her ascent of the boulders and looked at him. In the softly deepening twilight, her eyes again held the mysterious promise of great beauty, and in their depths a shade of respect, of surprised admiration, had suddenly become visible. As she gazed at him, her lips parted involuntarily. "'I didn't think you were so plucky,' she said. Then abruptly she stopped, glancing over her shoulder. From the road behind them came the clicking thud of a horse's hoofs and a moment later the voice of Ashland hailed them out of the dusk. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com